I'll ask you to take your Bibles with me, turn in them to our study of Luke chapter 9. As we prepare our hearts for worship around the Lord's table here in just a little while, we find ourselves back in the study of the Gospel of Luke. And we are returning to where we left off here in Luke chapter 9. This is a fascinating text. It's fascinating in a lot of ways, but one of them primarily is what it means to truly acknowledge Jesus as the Christ. To say that Jesus is the Son of the living God, to to say the words that Jesus is the Christ, to answer the question that is posed here in this text of who do you say that I am? I want us morning to begin our time just by hearing the text again, beginning in verse 21 and reading down through verse 27. It says, but he warned them and instructed them not to tell anyone. Remember, he has just asked them, who do you say I am? Peter gives that answer. You are the Christ of God. He warns them not to instruct and instructed them not to tell anyone saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Let's once again just go before the Lord in prayer as we prepare our hearts for what He has for us today. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for speaking to us in it. Thank You for this being the inerrant, infallible, authoritative Word from You so that we don't have to search in all kinds of mystical places for what you want of us, your people. We know you have told us. And so help us this morning by the power of your Spirit to understand these things and to know them in our hearts more than just in our intellect so that we would live by them. So that your name would be glorified in us, through us, word and deed, all to the praise of our Savior in whose name we pray, Jesus Christ. Amen. Of course, as I was reading the text, you were reminding yourself surely that you understood that all of this comes on the heels of the Apostle Peter's confession on behalf of the twelve disciples. We know these men to be called later the twelve apostles, 
But this is the 12 disciples, and in verse 20, Peter makes that declaration that Jesus is the Christ. He is <coughs> not <coughs> categorically, but he is the one who speaks often <coughs> on behalf of the 12. You remember in the ministry of Jesus Christ and his teaching of them, it had come to the point where they needed to take what I referred to last time, at least in my own thinking as I think through these things, that this is their final semester exam. It's a one-question test. It's the most important question that, test question that will ever be asked. There is no more important question than this. It's the most crucial question for their very existence. And their answer to that question has eternal consequences and ongoing consequences. It is a pass-fail test. It is one question, pass or fail, there is no curve. And the question is the very one that every man, every woman, every child is confronted with in our day and needs to be confronted with. And that question is this reality. Who do you say that I am? Over years ago, even in our church, a dear friend of ours went to be with the Lord and his question to people in evangelizing was, do you realize the Bible says Jesus is God? In essence, that was the question. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Nothing more personal could have been asked of the 12 disciples, and no more important question or personal a question can be asked of any of us in our day and age today. Because our answer to the question will reveal not only what we believe about Jesus Christ, but our answer to the question in what we say we believe will show the reality of actually what we believe by how we live. And in that, it will reveal to us just where we are heading for all eternity. It is a pass or fail. And most sadly, most fail the test. Jesus said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount, the road is narrow and few there are who find it. I believe today in evangelicalism, the church pews or the chairs of the church are filled with people who do not know Jesus Christ. It is a narrow road. It's not more narrow than some of us would like to think. And the question that I want to pose to all of us here this morning is simply this. How do we know if we've passed or if we've failed the test? How do we know? Even in asking that question in my own mind, it, it launches me back to the times when I was in formal education, when I was in school, turning in tests with all of the answers on them. And every time I would turn in a test, I'd anxiously wait for the results, always assuming, always having the assumption that I had in some way, in fact, passed the test. But lingering in my mind continually was this potential of failure. 
course, upon receiving the test back with its grade, I became immediately aware of my fate in the class. I was glad there were curves in grading. There is no curve with God. It is pass or fail. And it is somewhat like that here with this test question. And we ought to think about it more seriously maybe than we think about it from time to time. Because the difference from any other test is that simple answering with the right words may or may not be an assurance that you have the correct answer. In other words, failure is clear for those who do not answer with the right words. It is clear that if you answer the question, who do you say that I am, with anything other than the Christ of God, that you have failed the test. That is a failing answer. If Jesus is not God, if He is not the Messiah, then you have shown the reality of your earthly existence and the direction to which you are headed for all eternity. You are headed for an eternity in hell itself if you don't believe that Jesus is God. So it is a failing answer. That's an obvious failing answer. But the crucial reality before us this morning is this. We can say those words. We can mimic the phrase, say the words as an answer. And the reality is we can still fail the test. In other words, words are not enough. Words are not enough. So how do we know? How do we know if we've passed the test? Is there some way to know since the words aren't enough? Well, of course, I wouldn't be here talking about this if I didn't believe there was, and I believe there is. And Jesus unfolds it for us here in two different parts. And so I want to take these separately so this morning, we're just going to focus our attention on verses 21 and 22. But we also, in our study this morning, are going to be turning over to Mark's gospel because there is a very important interchange that takes place between Jesus and Peter in light of his answer that is not recorded for us here in Luke. So I want us to turn over to Mark's gospel Chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Verse 33. Jesus asks at the beginning there in verse 29, Who do you say that I am? Peter answers and says to him, You are the Christ. Right? Meaning you are God Himself, you're the Messiah, you're the one who came from God. And He warns them not to tell anyone about Him, and He begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, be killed, and three days rise, after three days rise again. And He was stating this matter plainly, and Peter takes Him aside and begins to rebuke Him. 
turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebukes Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. You notice at the end of verse 33 comes that very important statement for all of the disciples to hear. As Jesus is rebuking Peter, he turns and wants all the disciples to hear this. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. That statement, beloved, exposes the sinful heart of man. Exposes the reality that while we can say the words, sin is crouching at the door, It sets the purposes and plans of God over against the purposes and plans of self. And I want us to understand this morning the impact of it as we think about passing the test. The glorious purposes and plans and acts of God are set against the blind, erring, sinful purposes of men. We have to remember that, we have to know that, we have to think about that regularly. Proverbs 14.12 tells us this, Man looks at his ways, and they seem right to him, but in the end they only lead to death. In other words, by our own nature, by our own sinfulness, in our own flesh, We do not know the mind of God. We do not naturally follow after the ways of God. In fact, Isaiah 55 says, His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And so we, as people, even saved people from time to time, we think with a worldly mind. And we miss the point of what God is doing, what God is accomplishing, His purposes. And so, by implication, we can announce Jesus as the Christ. Remember just a few verses before this, this is what Peter said, you are the Christ. We can announce Him as Christ with our words. And then, like Peter and like these men, we can think with a worldly mind. We can go away with the confession, with the words rattling out of our mouths, and we can become an offense to God. And what I want us to understand this morning is, if that is our character, if that is the very essence of our life, if that is our makeup and our daily living, if that is the drive of our life to, to run after our self-purposes, then we show ourselves to not have passed the test, even though we say it. In other words, our confession may be with right words, but our mind is set on the ways of man and not on the ways of God. The Apostle John gets very direct, very pointed in his words in 
his epistle, the first epistle he wrote, 1 John, in chapter 1 and verse 6, here's how he would relay this kind of idea. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. And the truth, or we do not practice the truth. So we can say, we can say Jesus is God. We could say Jesus is the Christ. And yet we can be those who walk in darkness. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. For those who are according to the flesh, this is the characteristic, the daily living, this is the essence of their life. Those who are according to this this life of setting their minds on their own things, those who are according to the flesh, this is the very thing they do. They set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, in other words, those who know God, those who truly have the Spirit of God in them, those who are living out what this is saying about what they confess... Those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit are on their heart and minds. Why? Because the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. In fact, it isn't even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you who are not in the flesh but in the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness, but if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if, by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul said to the Philippians in chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, For many walk of whom I told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Many walk. Many, many look good. Many, many carry themselves in such a way that it appears as if the confession that He is the Christ would be a passing grade. But they are actually enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their appetite. Glory, they glory in their shame. They set their minds on earthly things. So to confess Jesus is the Christ, and that confession to to reflect a passing grade in the eyes of God, then there will be a reflected, visible outworking of pursuing the things of God as the characteristic of your life rather than the things of men, the things of the world. Passing the test is a life 
that sets its mind on God's interest and not man's. Jesus was teaching them a severe lesson here. Make that confession, and yet your life must reflect this reality. And remember, in this group, there is Judas. Judas is there with them confessing the same thing. Confessing that Jesus is God, that you are the Christ, you're the Messiah. And yet in the end, his life is a destruction. But Jesus says here in verse 31 of Mark chapter 8, Begin teaching them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. Peter thought Jesus needed to be corrected. Peter, in his brashness and his boldness for his own plans and the plans which he had in his mind and all the rest, thought he needed to correct Jesus Christ. He wasn't going to allow anything like that to happen to Jesus. Oh, no, no, Lord, this isn't going to happen. You're not going to suffer. You're not going to be rejected. You're not going to be killed. And I don't even think they heard the last part. This wasn't the way the kingdom of the Messiah was going to come about, at least not in Peter's minds and the rest of the disciples. That's not how it's going to come. No, and Jesus, out of His grace, had to correct Him. We're just like that at times, aren't we? Oh, no, no, Jesus. uh, No, this isn't how it should go. We try in our own worldliness, in our own worldly thinking to tell Jesus That isn't the way to do it. This isn't how life's to be going for me. No, no, Jesus. No, no. You are the Christ, but but you must have messed up somewhere. This isn't how it's supposed to be going. Often we go to God as if to correct Him. When we see things happening that we don't think fit the way we planned things to go. You know why that is? Because we're not setting our minds on the things of God, but we're setting them on the things of us, self. Rather than loving and embracing the ways of God, we, we tend to love and embrace the ways of self, our ways, what we want, how we want it. Peter thought he needed to correct the Lord of glory Why? Because Jesus wasn't going according to Peter's plan. And all of this just introduces us to a profound principle about passing the test. And that is that those who have passed the test strive to live their lives according to the plan of God rather than their own plan. In other words, those who are characterized by striving for God's purposes and not man's purposes can know with assurance that they have passed the test. So 
But we need not be confused here. Peter was a true believer. Peter is a true believer. He had truly passed the test. He gave the correct answer, but he needed to understand the true outworking of that answer in his own life. It's more than just words. It's more than just words. Let's look just at what is happening here, because we we all come with human baggage to the test. I mean, that, that question posed to us is... On the, on the sheet, if you will, but we come with all of our own human baggage and we all need to be reminded of what the answer means. Just like they did. The disciples now have affirmed that Jesus is their Messiah. I mean, they have, they have that in their minds. You are the Messiah. Jesus confronts them in this remote place, Caesarea Philippi, and he asks them that ultimate question, who do you say that I am? And they all reply through Peter. Peter's answering on their behalf. This is their answer. You are the Christ. You are the Christ. That's the clear verbal affirmation that you are the Messiah. You're the one who is to come. You are the anointed one, and we get it. We understand that. There's no explanation for your words. There's no explanation for your works except that answer. You are the Christ. We can't explain it any other way. You are the one. So Jesus is moving them through the truth that they need to understand And he's laying down for them at the same time a foundation for their living. But listen, even as they understood that he was the Messiah. In fact, according to Matthew 16, where Matthew records this event, Matthew says they understood that he's going to build the church. So it's not just your Messiah, but but you're going to build your church. And upon this, the gates of hell aren't going to prevail. So so there's even implications for the reality of his Messiahship. Even though they had even heard Jesus say, the gates of Hades are not going to stand against that. That means in, in the mind of the Jews that death can't even stand against it. So there's a depth of understanding they have, even though they've heard Jesus say that not even death can stop his mission. The one thing they still can't handle is that their Messiah is going to suffer and die. They don't get it. They couldn't handle that the Messiah, their king, the anointed one, should suffer many things. I mean, this is what stoked Peter's mind. No way could this happen. You can't have a Messiah that's going to suffer. We're not going to have a Messiah that's going to be formally rejected by the people. We're not going to have a Messiah that's going to be killed. None of that kind of framework worked out in their messianic plan. That wasn't how they saw life working out. 
they were like most of the Jews. They had set their mind on the plan of man rather than on the plan of God. God just needed to step into the picture and fulfill what their plan was. The first thing, beloved, that will prevent us from having a mindset on our own agenda rather than in God's is always reminding ourselves that God has a plan. Don't ever let that reality get fogged. It sounds so simple. It sounds so mundane. And yet God, I find over and over again, uses the simple and the mundane, at least in my pea brain mind, to impact me the most. God has a plan. It's so profound for our daily living. It's so profound for us who confess Jesus is the Christ. God has a plan. And that is exactly what these men needed to understand and what they quite possibly had forgotten. God has a plan and it's not their plan. It's not their plan. Go back over to Luke. Luke chapter 9 again. Verse 22, Jesus says these very words. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Jesus is saying exactly what the plan of God is. He warns them in the verse before. He instructs them, don't tell anyone what you just said. Why? Because people wanted to make him the the human king. They wanted to rush in. The crowds in John chapter 6 wanted to make him king. They wanted to come take him and set up this earthly kingdom. So says, don't, don't, don't warn them. Don't, don't tell them what, what you just said. That's a revelation from God, right? God even says, Jesus says to Peter, listen, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. That's not a man plan. This is a God plan. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed, be raised up on the third day. The word must there is an important word in our text. Because it says to us that God has a plan and that His plan must happen to accomplish all that God has planned. The must cannot be skipped. Cannot be edited. There's no ongoing editing going on. God has a plan, and it includes at least four realities of the Messiah according to our text. God has said this is what must happen. It includes suffering, which includes rejection, which includes death, which includes resurrection. These are the four realities that must take place. Those last three or second two, I should say, fall into the category of the suffering. So, first of all, it includes that, suffering. The Son of Man must suffer many things. In order to suffer, Jesus must go to Jerusalem. He had to. It was the center of hostility against Him. In fact, in Matthew 16, in that parallel account, in Matthew's Gospel, he says, I must go to Jerusalem. He uses the same phraseology. I must go. 
the religion of Jerusalem couldn't stand Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's a religion of man. It's a religion of man-made self-edification. It can't stand Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ says in verse 24, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Jesus' life is totally opposite than the religion of men. The religion of Jerusalem is hypocritical. It's self-righteous. It is self-centered. And their self-centered practices were overthrown and flooded by the truth that Jesus brought to them and they hated Him for that. But because it is the plan of God, the Jews would never have to chase Jesus down. They never would have to hunt for Jesus like a fugitive of justice, he would go and offer himself freely. This was the plan of God, just as it's recorded for us. John chapter 10, verse 18, no man takes my life from me, I lay it down myself. So why was this a must? Why must Jesus go and suffer many things? Because of sin, that's why. It could happen no other way. Jesus Christ had to suffer because of sin. Their sin, our sin, my sin, personally your sin, all of our sin. Jesus had to suffer for us. For all whom would ever believe Jesus suffered the pain for your sin. He suffered the penalty for your sin. That's the first must of God's plan. And then he says, the Son of Man must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He must suffer many things and be rejected. Be rejected. This is also a must. This had to happen. Why? Because it was the divine decree of God that Jesus be rejected of men. Isaiah 53 says he was despised and ashamed. He had been formally rejected by the Jewish leadership already. But the day was coming for them to express their formal rejection in an outward way. All of these formal rejections of Jesus Christ were coming to fruition. The leaders formally rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That was clear. It was all according to the plan of God. And they had, you think about it, in a human reality, in a human way, in a human mindset way, as if it's just some kind of coincidence, had they not persisted in the absolute rejection of Jesus Christ, then certainly Pilate would never have had Christ crucified. That's why Peter stands up in Acts and says it was according to God's predetermined plan that Jesus Christ was delivered up to be killed at the hands of godless men. The plan of God. But Christ was crucified. And so it says third that he must be killed. That's why it says that he must suffer must be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, the religion of men. They have to reject him. And he must be killed. Must be killed. The word killed is not the word for some kind of judicial execution. 
It's a word that means to be murdered. To be murdered. To, To be robbed of life. Jesus says to these men, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be robbed of life. It's all according to the plan and purpose of God because without the shedding of my blood on your behalf, there will be no atonement for your sin. I can't just have my finger cut and bleed on the ground. I must give my life. For the wages of sin is death. I think it's with those words, their ears kind of closed up in their own sinfulness. I think at the time they missed hearing the last point. They missed hearing the last phrase of Jesus' statement. They they must have, or, or, or Peter would never have had the notion to rebuke Jesus. He he was already predetermined to not let any of those things happen to Christ. No, no, this isn't going to happen. My heart is not set on the things of God. My heart is set on the things of men. I don't realize that, but you are exposing that. You see, for Peter and for the others, their Messiah wasn't going to set up that kind of kingdom He wasn't coming in that way. He wasn't. That's not how it was going to go. No, no, no. I think that's why Mark's gospel in verse 32, it says, and Jesus was telling them plainly. He wasn't telling them some new news. They had heard it all before. This wasn't new what he was telling them in this phraseology here in verse 22. This isn't new words to them in the sense of the whole reality of what he's talking about. Oh, it may have been veiled in certain ways as he was speaking. He was saying things like, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. He's speaking, though, to the Pharisees about that. They had heard that. He was saying words like, no sign will be given to the generation except that of Jonah. Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, and the Son of Man will be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. Certainly speaking to his resurrection, speaking to what is to come, speaking to the plan of God, they heard all of that, but it was veiled in their hearts, veiled in their minds, partly because they were setting their minds on the things of man, not on the things of God. Sometimes we go, God, I'm not going to do it until you, I fully understand what you're doing. Really? You're not going to follow what God says because, because you don't have a, a full, full-orbed grasp on everything He said? Really? Setting your mind on the things of men. Peter was appalled at the idea of Jesus saying this. I think he was motivated by Partly by his affection for Christ. No, 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 you're not going to die. We love you too much. We're not going to allow that to happen. But also, certainly because of Jesus' rebuke of him, he was motivated by his desire to have Jesus set up the kingdom now, according to that plan, according to the plan they had in their minds, what Jews and, and them being in the nation of Israel had anticipated for a long time. 
put an end to the oppression, put an end to all the rule of the Roman Empire over us. They never dreamed of associating any idea of suffering and death with the Messiah. If following Jesus means that, that's, that's not what our plan is, but it's the plan of God. So Jesus rebukes Peter. He rebukes the disciples and implicationally he rebukes all of us. He rebukes us by each and every time we put our minds on the plans of man rather than on the plans of God. Because we are like that at times. Maybe even more than we care to admit. But we're like that when we tell others to think more about their comfort rather than obedient duty to the Christian life. Spend more time thinking about that. Spend more time thinking about how you can pad your life and care for that here in this earth more than just following after what Christ would have. When we do that, we're setting our mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. When we tell others to consider their interest rather than the call of God on their lives, we're just like Peter. Or maybe when we turn ourselves or others away from the way of sacrifice, we're playing the part of those who proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. But with our actions, we have our mind set on the things of man rather than on the things of God. Beloved, His is the way of suffering. His is the way of rejection. His is the way of possibly even death. And then, resurrection. It's an interesting juxtaposition in the reality of the earthly life compared to the life to come. This life filled with suffering, rejection, and even death, and yet the life to come, a resurrected life, a new life. So God's plan is verse 22. Man's plan is to tell God, no, no. No, no, that's not how it's going to work. And the protection for us is to set our mind on the things of God, not on the things of man. In fact, Jesus uses pretty strong words in Mark's account. In verse 32, he says, Peter, you're, you're talking in essence the same way that Satan talks. You're doing, acting out the same way that Satan acts out. That's exactly what Satan was doing when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Jesus, 40 days, 40 nights, no food, becomes hungry, and Satan says, now's the time to pounce. Now I'm going to get on him. Man's plan and God's plan. Here we go. I'm going to tempt you with man's plan. Go ahead, Jesus. Take care of yourself. Make the rocks into bread. You can feed yourself. You can do it. Take care of yourself. God's left you out here. Jesus said, no, not doing that. Go ahead, Jesus, don't suffer, don't die. You deserve the best. We're like that, beloved. We're like that. We forget that the Bible says that through trials we're perfected. 
We forget that God is molding us into the image of Jesus Christ. And all we can see is the present plan. All we can see is the today. And yet it's the very thing that God is taking us through that's perfecting us into Christ-likeness. This is our fleshly tendency. This is the weakness of our humanity in us. The tendency is not to think like God thinks. Like Peter, all we can see is the present darkness. All we can see is the present pain. All we can see is the present trouble that's right before us, yet God sees the future glory. God's working to that end. That is His ultimate plan. Listen, Jesus may not fit man's definitions of who Jesus is to be, but He is no less the fulfillment of God's plan. So if you're here this morning, and you're sitting here this morning, and you say, man, over time I've just been looking for a Savior. Somebody will fix my life. Somebody will come in and, and, and attach himself to my life and make my plan work out. That's a Savior. If you're looking for a Jesus or a Christ or a religious leader of some kind, if you're looking for a deliverer, you're just looking for a Messiah. One that better fits how you think it ought to be then you've set yourself against the true Messiah. Why? Because he doesn't necessarily fit the human definition. The human definition was simply this, he's a good man. Who do the people say I am? Verse 18, well, they say you're this, you're John the Baptist, you're Elijah, some other prophet. I mean, you're a good man, you're a religious person, you're, you're to be respected, you're to be followed by way of example. Okay, who do you say? Well, you're God. Well, if I'm God, then how are you living? How are you living? Because this is what God's plan is for me, So how are you living? My exhortation to us this morning from this text is just simply this. Let's set our mind on the things of God. If we're going to profess Jesus as the Christ, then let's set our mind on the things of God and show that we have passed that test by living according to His plan. His plan. Of course, verse 23 through 27 gives us the second part of that, and we're going to cover that next week, but it's a fascinating reality as to our life. As we prepare our hearts for the communion table, I'll just ask you to bow with me in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. I trust that we're not confused about these things. Certainly, those who would confess you as the Christ and yet not live for you certainly are simply saying words. Certainly, those who reject you outright are still on the wide road to destruction. 
But oftentimes, Lord, we find ourselves living for man's plans and not yours. We've confessed you as the Christ. Thank you for the rebuke of your word. Thank you for what you said to Peter and the rest. We could be a check in our own lives. How am I living? The word clearly tells us how we are to live. Certainly we understand that's not a perfection, this side of glory. But that is to be the characteristic of our life. That is to be the drive of our life, that we are to desire those things and strive for them by the power of your spirit as we submit ourselves to your word. Walking, trusting you by faith that what you are allowing, what you are doing is your plan. We don't want to circumvent that with our own thinking, with our own ways. Help us just willingly submit to you whatever it is you would have for us. Rejoicing always difficult at times as that is, being thankful in all things as difficult as that is, looking to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, because we too, like you, have a joy set before us. And so we can endure, we can continue, because we have a Savior who did and we are in you. So thank you for these promises and the truth of it. Lord, we just want to honor you. Help us to do that faithfully. Bless your people as they live for you. May their lives flourish because of their obedience to you. May they know the joy that you bring to the heart as we obey. And you receive all the glory in it all. You're the maker of creator of all things, and you have brought us into your family, you receive all the glory. So thank you for saving us in Christ. And it's in his name we pray this morning. Amen.